What's going on? Thank you so much for listening to this podcast. It is heard live every day from noon to three on WBT Radio in Charlotte. And if you want exclusive content like invitations to events, the weekly live stream, my daily show prep with all the links, become a patron. Go to thepetecalendarshow.com. Make sure you hit the subscribe button. Get every episode for free right to your smartphone or tablet. And again, thank you so much for your support. The email, Pete at thepetecalendarshow.com. Um... So I do have, hang on, because I spent the last hour doing the Murdoch trial uh, coverage, and uh, we usually talk to Matt Harris, co-host of the Murdoch Family Murders, the Impact of Influence podcast, Um, and he is unavailable. I just uh, learned he's unavailable for the segment, but that's okay because there's a little bit of cleanup still. A couple other uh, aspects to get to from the the Friday court session, Uh, but before I do that, let me read... Uh, there's an email here. Uh, this is from, I believe it's yes, Scott in York, um, who says, uh, is there any way possible to talk about something else? And that's all capitalized. So I'm assuming screaming that at me, um, you are becoming a one trick pony. This trial is going to end soon and you will be lost. I'm switching to music. Have a great day. All right. Well, I cannot compete with music. I mean, like it's that's I mean that's passive listening. This is active listening. It's just a whole different kind of listening altogether. That's I mean just the research indicates like people listen to spoken word formats. They are way more engaged than with music on in the background because that's the whole point. It's music on in the background, and when you're listening to somebody speaking, the brain is activated in a different way. Uh, it's one of the challenges. Like the, when you're listening to a music station, they go to a commercial break. The brain recognizes that you've shifted to a spoken uh, message. And if you and, and it breaks through, and so people like tend to change channels and stuff. Like this is a, uh, anyways, this is tons of research. Whole radio industry knows this. Podcast industry knows it as well. Um, so I spoken word formats, NPR, same thing, right? Spoken word format, very very popular because it's active listening. So uh, yes, there is it is possible for me to talk about something else, Scott. Um, in fact, I spent the whole first hour, I thought, talking about something else. I I think we covered the. The lab leak theory? I mean, memory's a little fuzzy on that, but I think, I'm pretty sure, I'm pretty sure I did that whole first hour. Um, in fact, I'm pretty sure that that most of the programming, that that most of the content I do is actually not related to Alec Murdoch. The vast majority, actually two-thirds of every show is not Alec Murdoch related, sometimes even more than that. And when the trial ends, which, by the way, the defense says it's going to finish today, they want to also do a trip out to... The hunting property go. They want to take the jury to the property, so they can get an idea of the sort of the spatial relationship between, um, like, the dog kennels and the feed room and all that, and where the bodies were found, that sort of thing. So they want the the defense is asking, and I, and I believe the judge allowed it. They're going to go on a trip out to the site. Now they also mentioned this morning that um, that apparently there have been. Um, there have been trespassers on the site. Uh, Dick Harputley and the attorney for Alec Murdoch, one of the attorneys, said that there were over the weekend there were dozens of people trespassing at the site. Um, yeah, I mean that's I, I don't understand people that are attracted to to that to to doing that. I don't get that at all. Um, so the defense is going to rest. They're going to go on the site visit. The prosecution then gets a chance to rebut. They get another, like, sort of mini round after this. 
I, I don't think that's going to last more than a day. Then they do their closing arguments, and it goes to the jury. And so, yes, Scott is correct that uh, that the trial will end soon. It's going to end soon. He is correct about that. It is going to end soon. He, I believe he is incorrect that I will, quote, be lost, considering I have been a talk show host for, uh, gosh, 15 years now. So I've never run out of material before. But I also recognize that when a story is in the news, as the Murdoch trial is, it is in national news. It is now international news. When a story, particularly from our listening area, South Carolina, he's out of Scott is from York, South Carolina, he says. So this is it's a big deal for the state of South Carolina. And so that's a big part of our audience here in Charlotte as well. I used to live in South Carolina. I know the area down there, I have friends from the area down there, so there's a lot of connections. Heck, one of the the surviving son, Buster, he's he was staying with his girlfriend in Rock Hill and working at the Wild Wings in Charlotte. Oh, was he at the one that closed down in Ayersley? Did you see that Wild Wings closed in Ayersley? Yeah, like because the the company that owns them is here in Charlotte. Oh wait, uh, sorry, did not mean to start discussing something other than the Murdoch trial. That's my bad. That was my bad. <laughs> This is why I call them program director emails. Um, they are going to the scene. Thank you, Icky Foo. They are going to the scene. Uh, now, I did see now here on the other side, I got this tweet from uh, MAGA, American Pitbull. Uh, quote, a message from a program director. The coverage of this Murdoch trial is terrific. Keep up the good work. <laughs> so, oh, I'm torn now. Oh, what do I do? Oh, I, when the When the trial is over... Then obviously this coverage ends. That's how that works, and then we'll be on to uh, we'll be on to other topics. And so I like I was asked this the other night by somebody who they don't they asked me um, one of my friends uh, said why why is everybody so interested in this case? And I like I don't know how to answer that except it's a really interesting case. People are interested in interesting things. I thought, um, and the. And so when you're looking for stories to cover and topics to do, you look for things that are interesting. I do. I mean, that's how I try to do my show prep, interesting and that and newsworthy, right? And a lot of stuff falls under that heading. And so you have to start picking things out. Now, I understand that for a lot of guys, true crime as a genre in like podcasting or radio or movies or uh, TV shows, that men are not the primary audience for – uh, for true crime, the the true crime podcasts, for example, those are the ones that, I mean, they're they're huge. There's a, they're always trying to find a new true crime to do, and that's part that that is part of what has driven this story. As a matter of fact, is the amount of coverage that it got for for the last two years since the boat case. Like Matt Harris, he started he started the podcasts in twenty one twenty twenty one. So there have been people who have been covering the story, it keeps adding new developments that are just crazy, right? I mean, like some of the, the the guy took the stand in his own defense, which, by the way, there are some people that believe that that indicates he is innocent because he, he wants to get up there and it sends this message to the jury that innocent people testify in their own defense, only guilty people don't. Now, I know that they're not supposed to think that. Juries are not supposed to think that. The judge will instruct the jury not to think that, not to not to assume if a defendant doesn't take the stand in their own defense, you are not to weigh that 
against them. But, <laughs> right, if there was no other way to explain his presence at the kennel, that would have been that would have been devastating. He had to he had to explain it, and his explanation has been that he lied all this uh, for all these uh, months, uh, better part of two years, and he lied to the to the law enforcement because he said he was paranoid from the drugs. Right, uh, the deputy did did the gunshot residue swab on him. The sheriff and his law partners were telling him to lawyer up. Right. The, uh, the boat wreck case, he threw that in there. Questions from SLED agent David Owens about his relationship with Maggie, about his relationship with Paul, were they good? And that he thought that the SLED agent, David Owens, was somebody, uh, some other corrupt agent from a case 10 years prior. Those were the factors that Alec Murdoch submitted. Brand new factors, brand new reason for why he had been lying for all this time. And the problem came at the very end of the cross-examination where the, the state, the prosecutor, Creighton Waters, played the very first interaction with an agent, with law enforcement, I should say, that Alec Murdoch had, which was the responding officer to the scene, uh, the Deputy Green. And he told Deputy Green the very same thing. He lied in that first instance. The first time he told the story and he was asked, when's the last time you saw them alive? He lied. Okay. When was the last time you were here with them, or talked to them, or anything like that? Um, it was earlier tonight. Uh, I, I don't know the exact time, but okay. I left. I was probably gone an hour and a half from my mom's, and I saw them about forty-five minutes before that. That was Sergeant Green, correct? Yeah, that was Sergeant Green. And at that point in time, SLED was not there. No one had gotten GSR from you. Your law partners or Sheriff Hill were not there. That's correct. No one had asked you about your relationships. David Owen was not there. That's correct. But you still told the same lie. And all those reasons that you just gave this jury about the most important part of your testimony was a lie too. Isn't that true, Mr. Murdoch? I, I disagree with that. Nothing further. All right, so that's how the, the state finished its questioning. Now, he did ask, and I think this is where he's going in the clo- for the closing uh, argument. He mentioned a term, a family annihilator. I had not heard this term before. I don't recall hearing the term before. But it is actually... Uh, it is actually a, uh, a psychological profile. Family annihilators. Uh, alrighty, so... Oh, let me read a couple of uh, messages real quick. Uh, at Patriot Girl says the Murdoch case is interesting because you don't often come across a sociopath of this caliber, especially right in your own backyard. And uh, Michael says, Hey, Pete, it's your show. Talk about whatever you want to. Sorry, the caps lock was on. <laughs> Thank you. And Monica says she was surprised. Uh, she's surprised that I was not framed for murder uh, while I was there. I guess what? Oh, that they're going to the scene. Um, so yeah, yeah. I don't. This is the thing. I try to uh, like. I try to to watch this uh, the testimony, thinking, okay, what if he's innocent? All right, now what if he's guilty? Like, how does this land? How is like? 
in my mind, how am I interpreting what I'm hearing and what I'm seeing? If he's innocent, okay, now let's let's assume now he's he's guilty. And if he's innocent, then yeah, I mean his his decision to lie about being at the kennels because he was afraid that it would put him too close to the murder scene and him being a seasoned trial lawyer as he is, knowing the law as he does, the head of the Trial Lawyers Association of South Carolina. Um, I don't know. Like I just I don't I don't I don't think that was a wise move. And apparently, you know, he didn't tell his lawyers either. Because I doubt they would have advised him to keep up with that lie. Um, all right, so the prosecution, I think they're going to try to make this argument that he is a uh, a family annihilator. Familicide. There are details of these family annihilators uh, that, that differ, but experts say there are uh, usually similarities that lead them to carry out these heinous acts. First off, 95% of them are men, right? There's a guy, uh, Neil Websdale, Dr. Websdale. He is the director of the Family Violence Institute at Northern Arizona University, the director of the National Domestic Violence Fatality Review Initiative. He's the author of a book, Familicidal Hearts. And uh, he says, domestic violence is a risk factor, saying about half of the cases of family annihilation, familicide, half the cases follow a history of domestic violence. A quarter to a third of them are civil or reputable, is what he describes them as, civil, reputable. In other words, quote, respectable people who've fallen from grace without a history of domestic violence, while the remaining cases exhibit elements of both. Okay, so... You got half that are just straight up like domestic violence, long history of it or whatever. And then you've got a quarter that's civil reputable. But then you got another quarter that has hallmarks of both. There was some domestic violence, but there was also this, you know, this uh, respectable person kind of uh, veneer. Killers tend to be white males, non-Hispanic, have access to a gun, a stepchild at home, or are dealing with estrangement. Right, wife takes the kids or something. Ironically, past criminal history is not a consistent indicator as they don't usually have a criminal record at all. So there are several scenarios of what motivates this angry over the family breakup. This is the most common, apparently, where uh, husband and wife are splitting, wife is leaving, taking the kids, right? So it's divorce on the horizon, so that's one scenario that doesn't apply. I don't think that applies in this case. There's been no evidence to suggest it. I know there are rumors about it, but there was no evidence to suggest that there was uh, trouble brewing or she was going to be uh, uh, divorcing him. A need for power. Familicide perpetrators may display a panoply of motives, but power tends to be a big one. Um, for the livid, coercive killers, which is probably the majority, we're talking about a need to exert their authority and power in relationships. They perceive their control as ebbing. They are deeply humiliated and rageful about what they are and what their partners have done to them, so they become vengeful. Another scenario. They are suffering from a personality disorder. Psychopathy. Antisocial personality. This is the person who is just tired of their spouse, tired of the obligations of having kids, or they meet somebody new. They may not be terribly bright. It seems absurd, but these killers believe if they can kill their family and engage in chicanery to make it seem like somebody else did it, then they are purging themselves of what they see as an intolerable burden. And then the fourth, and I think this might be the one that they're trying to, 
they're trying to pin him with. The cases where husbands may not have been possessive or controlling, instead they have gone through big social or economic changes. These are referred to as atypical familicide. Catastrophic news often presages familicide in individuals who are not known domestic violence perpetrators. Where there is no history of violence, then you're dealing with repressed individuals who are over-controlled and often depressed. It's a pending life catastrophe like a foreclosure, the inability to provide, or saving their families from destitution. It can be a mixed bag of things, but there's almost a misguided altruism in some of these cases where they believe that at some level they're doing their families a favor by killing them. They tend to believe that living without the standard of life they have had is too daunting. And mixed in, there is this shame about being unable to provide. It is also an incredible sense of entitlement and narcissism, the entitlement to take a life like that. I have no idea if this is where they're going, but the fact that the the, the prosecutor, um, the fact that the prosecutor mentioned Straight up asked him, are you a family annihilator? Like, that, it just came out of the blue. And then he moved on to other things. I suspect he threw that word out or that term out there in order to call back to it in his closing argument. Because the motive has always been, I think, a very weak part of the state's case. You don't, you know, the financial crimes and being a liar doesn't make you a murderer of your wife and son. They don't have to prove motive. But, man, it sure helps to get a conviction. All right. Oh, I see, Monica. Okay. Framed. She's surprised I was never framed for murder while I was living in Rock Hill, South Carolina. That's yeah. Because that's how they do you. Uh, let's jump over here and get Winston on. Hey, Winston, how are you doing today, this fine Monday afternoon? I'm doing good. I'm waiting for the closing arguments here. Yeah. You know, I, uh, I, I picked the ball up late in the game here. But uh, I I watched the my particular uh, the, the interview with the detective from Sled while I was in the car, and they had these four individuals. They were uh, experts on uh, body language. Yeah, and it was just incredibly help. This guy is guilty as sin. So, do you and, think the body you know, language I mean, people? From my vantage point, I, but the, the, the trouble is. You know, beyond a reasonable doubt. I mean, you don't have them. You don't have witnesses. You mm-hmm. don't have a weapon. You know that you go down the bullet list there. But uh, I, uh, you know, when something like that, when he saw, when he, if, if, if I came home and my wife and son were shot in pieces, I would freaking go berserk. I mean, I'm berserk without that. But <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I mean, this guy to be cool and just nonchalantly, I guess he had to. No, he, he was doped up on the oxycodone because he admitted he had a, he had a, a bottle full in the car when he was getting interviewed. Right. So I don't. But I think, like honestly, and I thought I don't want to say his performance because I'm not alleging that he was he was acting because I don't know if he did it or not. Right. Um, but I I I, I thought his his reaction, his behavior that night was in line with that of a grieving husband and, and father. Oh, no. You don't think no, so? No, no, no. I, I'm in the jury box. I'm voting guilty. 
you know, the best thing, the best outcome he can have is have one jury, a hung jury, find one jury maybe he paid off. <laughs> and another way he could have probably got a lesser, because he needs to go to the electric chair, quite frankly. Well, that's not but on the table. It's not a capital case. Say, Look, I went cuckoo. I need, I'm insane. I need mental help. You know, I want to go ahead and, and plead guilty reason of insanity. Right, I mean, well, listen, Pete. I don't, yeah, I no, he's, 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 he's not, he's pleading not guilty. This case, he's pleading not guilty on the financial crimes, which he just admitted to doing, to lying about in this case. So, uh, like, he's going away. That's, he's not, it, there's well, no doubt. Lied, he lied, he lied about everything. But my thing is, there was no insurance policy taken out on the children and the wife. I mean, I mean, for this guy just to come and, and kill his, his wife and child. I mean, I, that, there's a hot place in hell for this guy. I'm going to tell you right now. Because if he's he, going to burn. Right. If he did it. You believe he did it. I understand that. But if he didn't do it, then, uh, I mean, talk about a, a travesty of, of justice here, of misjustice, right? I mean, like, if he didn't do it, and this is, and they're charging him, and, and he's going to go down for the murder of his wife and son, and he did not do it, what if? Well, what, let me ask you something. How does he, how does he create these tears? Does he have, what's that stuff they use in Hollywood to make him cry? Is he holding some of that in his back pocket? He pulls it out when he takes that handkerchief out and he stuffs it up to his nose and then boom, the tears come out. <laughs> I don't think, I don't think they let him have whatever this thing is you're saying. I don't know. I've never heard of that, but he's got that handkerchief around all the time. Well, yeah, because he keeps crying because it, it, I mean, it's they're fake tears. Well, okay. You say they're fake tears, but I, I don't know if they're fake I'm tears or not. I don't want you in a jury box that I ever am convicted of charged with something because. You, know, you don't you want not, me? You don't. You don't, you you don't know, want me if you're charged? You I would think you would want me in the jury box if you were charged with a crime. You would want me there. I think I would make a good juror. I don't know why I've never been. Nobody ever wants me to be their juror. I got, I've got. i been called three times in my life, and every time they, they kick me out. But um, I think I would make a good juror because I am able to entertain the evidence and and. Uh, like I'm waiting until the closing arguments. I want to. I want to hear their cases. Like wrap it up for me, and then you go in and you deliberate with the jurors. So, like, there's a process involved here, and so uh, okay, I'm, okay, yeah, yeah. I'll have to wait. We'll have to wait. We'll have to but wait. I, I say guilty. All right, I appreciate it, Winston. Thanks, buddy. All right, take care. Yeah, I don't know, and I know that that's like a, that infuriates some people. Like, I don't. There, there, there are some people I see on the social media, and they're just like. They're just entrenched, man. They are dug in on the positions, and you're free to do that. But I don't know. I've 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 watched, gosh, probably eighty to ninety percent of all of the testimony in the case, all of the the, the trial every day, and uh, I want to hear what the defense because today they got an expert uh, that they've got on the stand today, another forensic pathologist, because the state called the forensic pathologist that did the review of the, you know, the autopsy and all of that. And she was the one that said, uh, like, this is likely how the shots occurred and in what order based on the entrance wound and exit wound and that sort of thing. And uh, the defense is called a guy out of Georgia who is with the Georgia Bureau of Investigation or was. He was their pathologist for years. They got him and they just gave him the reports and they said, Take a look and give us your conclusion. Well, he came back with a different conclusion. So then they were like, okay, you're hired. You know, come on up and testify. And 
he's making the argument that the shots, uh, the the second shot to pull, where the South Carolina pathologist said that the second shot was fired, you know, from his front and it went into his uh, went into his head and went out the back. That that's actually reversed. This guy believes that it was the shot came from the top of the head as if his head was pointed down and it was a close contact gunshot residue and there would have been a lot of blowback that occurs. And this was actually one of the, like people who know firearms and they do like this, I know this is going to get kind of graphic, but if you put the barrel of the gun up against somebody, it creates this blowback effect and it becomes very, uh, you get blasted with the material, with, with bodily fluids and such, and it's all over you. And so I think the defense is, and look, I, I agree. Like, this is a very tight time frame that the state is saying that Murdoch, you know, murdered them and then cleaned himself up. Now, there's another thing, component, there's another component here is that they, them being avid hunters, they, uh, they could have kept a box anywhere on the property, right? They could have kept a box where they you keep supplies and such because it's 1,700 acres. I've heard this theory as well that they could have had a box out on the property and he could have dumped the stuff there. And then disposed of it later on, at a later date. That's a risky move, though. But you know, the, but the state is going to argue that he got he did all of this stuff. You know, probably shot her from sitting in the uh, you know shot Paul first, then shoots Maggie while seated in the uh, in the um, golf cart, then takes her phone, drives it half a mile away, ditches it on the side of the road, drives back, then I guess cleans himself off disposes, uh, you know, collects all of the clothing in this blue tarp, then takes it someplace, either stashes it at his mom's house when he goes there for, you know, 20 minutes, ditches the stuff out back, then comes back sometime later and disposes of it. Don't know. So it's a very tight time frame, though, that 15-minute window for when he was down at the kennels to when he leaves and whether or not you can believe that he would have heard or would not have heard the shots if he was up at the house where he doesn't really remember if he fell asleep or not after he was at the kennels, which like, to me, that's the biggest problem is that lie, that lie that he said he wasn't there when he was and he doesn't have a really good explanation for it. Not in my mind, but that doesn't mean he murdered them. It means there may be something else going on that he's trying to protect people from. I don't know. But if I'm on that jury and the defense can offer me some, you know, can plug some of these holes, can make some compelling arguments. And also that, you know, here's the other key. You also know as a juror that he has acknowledged all of these crimes on the financial side. And his defense attorney asked him, you're you've already you know, you're saying all of this stuff. You're looking at a long sentence for this. So is there an out? Is there a way that the jury gets to say, well, you know what, we're not really sure on the murder thing, so we know he's going to go down for the financial crimes, or he's you know, likely going to go down for that. So we'll just go, we'll, we'll, we'll be unable to render a verdict. Or they acquit him altogether, but they just aren't able to render a verdict. Hung jury, and then send him away on the financial stuff. I don't know. I don't know. We'll, we'll see. Um, let me see here. So Russ says, Pete. So Alex Murdoch's most compelling defense is stochastic terrorism. Indeed, it is. It is. That is like that was a compelling line of argument that I'm frankly surprised the defense did not try to do more with. 
This, I mean, look, this weekend we had, according to the defense attorneys in uh, outside of the presence of the jury, when they were talking about going on the site visit to Moselle, the defense attorneys talked about dozens of people over the weekend that were on the property. This like ghoulish sightseeing tour to go see where the murders occurred. Um, it is quite possible that people started following this case a long time ago with the boat wreck and all of that. And then when Murdoch was uh, Paul Murdoch got charged, right, they started getting death threats and the like. That probably did happen. And so I'm surprised the defense didn't try to make more of that. It was just that one exchange with the prosecutor where Alex, you know, made this argument. And I thought that's the most compelling argument you could have made. Um. But yes, it is a stochastic terrorism argument. This idea that, uh, you know, you as a leader, you say some things and then people on social media hear it and then they go and do something based on what you said. This is what they're accusing Trump of, right? This They, they throw this word stochastic and then all of a sudden it's like, oh, that sounds academic, like it's something credible. Russ goes on to say, my wife's been following the Murdoch shenanigans since the boat wreck. She once served on a grand jury or as a grand jury foreman. So she's pretty much a legal expert now. <laughs> we we heavily lean towards him as the only reasonable murder uh, murderer, but also think the prosecution has left a lot of room for reasonable doubt. But as you say, never try to predict elections or jury trials. Yeah, that's uh, right now. That's where I'm at. And people say, well, there's no direct evidence. I mean, there is some. I mean, there isn't like a smoking gun. There's no gun. They have no murder weapons. And But all the evidence, or virtually all of it, is circumstantial. And the circumstantial evidence, though, is, is to be weighed as just as direct evidence is. So you line up all the circumstances, and eventually, like, he's either the most unluckiest guy in the world who happened to lie about a vital piece of information for a year and a half because of the reasons he claimed, or right, he is practiced at the art of deception. He's a lawyer. He would get up there and make compelling arguments against uh, uh, for his clients in order to win millions and millions of dollars from juries. He could he could tug on heartstrings. I mean, think John Edwards, right? So again, that's that's if he did it. If he didn't do it, and I don't know if his tears are real, but people would attack him. They were like, "Oh, he's fake tears, fake tears." I I I don't know how one goes about manufacturing fake tears, and I don't know how one determines that tears are, in fact, fake when you see them. You know, I, I mean, I understand crocodile tears. I get those. But those are much bigger, and they're scaly, you know? Like, okay. Um, so I got a tweet here that, yeah, body language reading is voodoo, pseudoscience. Yeah, I don't put a lot of faith in that either. Matt Harris doesn't either. The host of the the uh, the podcast, uh, the fam, uh, the Murdoch family murders, impact of influence. He, he he doesn't believe any of that either, and he gets a lot of uh, guff, one might call it, from uh, listeners to the podcast. Uh, he get, he gets a lot of blowback from people that they they don't like the fact that he dismisses those types of uh, analyses. I don't know. Uh, I mean, I do know people have tells. I do know that. Um, I'm not an expert in it, in reading it. I just think a lot of that stuff is, yeah, way open for interpretation. You know, the longer you watch somebody 
I think the better able you're going to be at, you know, determining their tells, right? But then again, some people may just have a, uh, just have a sense for this stuff. I don't know. I don't, I don't put a lot of faith in that stuff either. I do know though, like there are, like when you look up and to your left, generally speaking, when if you're trying to remember something and you look up to your left, you roll your eyes up and to the left, that means you're trying to recall something that you actually do know to be true. Looking up to the right, you're literally looking into a different part of the brain. That's like subconsciously, this is kind of what you what you're doing. So you're looking up to the right, and that's where you manufacture stuff. But I don't know if that's body language. I don't know if that counts as body language. So um, the experts are now floating this. Uh, the defense experts that have been on the stand today are floating the theory uh, that there were. it's more likely that there were two shooters at the scene. So we'll see what they said today. See you tomorrow. Don't break anything while I'm gone.